Gubernatorial debates, a 2010 flood, and ads blanket the airwaves of Tennessee. Welcome to the week of June 25th. This is Grand Divisions. I'm Joel Ebert, political reporter here at the Tennessean. With me today is Joey Garrison, our Metro News reporter here in Nashville. Uh, Dave Boucher is out in the field, so I've, I've got a substitute in. Uh, last week, we saw the first uh, head-to-head debate between uh, former Nashville Mayor Carl Dean and House Minority Leader Craig Fitzhugh square off in a one-on-one debate in Nashville. Joey, give us a little recap of what happened there. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's the uh, first and I believe only time that the the two Democrats uh, will be on the stage together, just them as part of a, as part of a primary uh, debate. I think what you saw was uh, both of them sort of hone in on, on what their central themes are right now. Dean uh, called himself a pragmatic, common sense uh, candidate. He's very much already running uh, towards the middle in anticipation he, of a general election. He's, tr- he's tried to praise both Haslam and, and yeah, and I mean he's in the past. you know obviously Carl Dean, the former mayor of Nashville, realizes uh, thinks he has a you know, for a general election, a real narrow path to win. And that includes getting Republicans sort of following that, that Bradison model. And I think that he's banking on uh, that he has the upper hand in this primary fight. And he doesn't have to run that traditional primary sort of campaign mm-hmm. to the left and what would be a democratic, uh, in a democratic primary. And so you, you see him throughout, uh, in recent, you know, his campaign, which, you know, started last year, sort of calling himself, a, you know, a, a business first, pragmatic, common sense, uh, you know, nonpartisan type mayor. On the flip side, uh, Fitzhugh, the uh, House Minority Leader, called uh, various times, uh, tried to hit uh, Dean on va- various criticisms, some from the left. And he also called himself, said at the end of uh, the, the debate, hey, sometimes it takes, I think the words were, quote, a fierce partisan uh, to get things done. And I think, you know, he's more popular among party activists, right. et cetera. And I think, uh, really, throughout the race, the the one opportunity he's had is to run to the left of mm-hmm. uh, Mayor Dean. I'm surprised he really hasn't done that as much uh, until here at the end. But I, I do think he sort of said, hey, uh, he was kind of not so subtly saying, hey, if, if you're a real Democrat, you need, you need to be voting for, for me. Very different approaches that both Dean and Fitzhugh had that night. I mean, you've got uh, Dean quoting Ronald Reagan at one point, yeah, and then you've got Fitzhugh <laughs> bringing up very pointed attacks against uh, against Dean, including one about the 2010 flood issue, which you covered at the time. Joey, tell tell you know unpack that a little bit more for us. What what is the controversy if there is one? Yeah, I mean, actually, I'm, I'm looking at the the first time this was reported. Uh, it was actually five years ago, almost uh, to the date. It was June uh, of 2013. And what I reported then was that the Dean administration was was proposing to shift uh, more than seven million dollars in, in federal flood aid that had been delivered to Nashville via community block grants uh, from a chunk of thirty three million dollar in community development block grants to Davidson County. He was going to take seven million of that uh, and shift it to to redevelopment work on the West Cumberland River riverfront. Eventually, that would become uh, a Sind Amphitheater along with the public park. Now the uh, you know again I reported it sort of it was a very small window but it went went to the Metro Development and Housing Agency Board was approved there and then later uh, the Metro Council approved it I believe with only one uh, no vote 
And so it was debated a little bit. It wasn't very controversial. But now, five years later, there's been a story of uh, a series of, of TV uh, reports out there that have uh, tried to raise the uh, questions about it. Um, and, and Fitzhugh himself, he's, yeah, and he's seizing himself, on yeah. these these TV yeah, reports yeah. saying, and, oh, this isn't very transparent to the Dean administration at the time. Uh, but but Dean himself is saying, uh, you know, this was vetted publicly. This is on the front page of well, the Well, what they argue and, is that at the time they had had several months of, uh, of and again, these, these sorts of funds at the time uh, went th- toward the uh, repair and rehab of owner uh, of of homes here in Nashville, more than nine million. Excuse me, more than nine million had been spent uh, on that purpose, along with other flood needs. And they had argued that they weren't getting any uh, more applicants from people. You know, you got to rewind a little bit. This would have been three mm-hmm. years after the. Dev- we're all talking about the devastating May 2010 flood, and they said that this had dried up. Of course, these are community development block grants. It's different than stuff from FEMA, et cetera, and so. They got approved from HUD at the time to to shift these money. Now, I think what the TV uh, to shift this money, I think what the TV report raises is uh, looking at various expenses, uh, you know, that were going to, to you know, very uh, architect, engineer services, those kinds. Of, I might be wording that incorrectly, but but essentially administrative mm-hmm. services contracts uh, with the group called uh, Commonwealth Development uh, that is. Uh, uh, performed a lot of the major civic projects, uh, led the construction of those, and they've raised questions about that. Um, you know, I would argue that that Dean, the Dean campaign, hasn't done a great job of of, of responding to this particular uh, issue and, and sort of allowed it to become one, as opposed to to being able, you know, addressing it mm-hmm. s- strongly on the front end. Um, I think there was a, a WSMB cut, you know, had one of the classic sort of. Catching him outside of a of a uh, campaign event, and, what is he and he was say? unwilling to, yeah. you know, yeah. or something yeah. like that. So I, I, I you know, it's not. It, I guess in a in this particular campaign, it has sort of turned into to one of the real points of contention. But um, there have been very few so far, right? Exactly, so you've, yeah. you've got you've got charter schools. The difference between Dean and Fitzhugh, even though Dean is arguing that that Fitzhugh has voted for charter schools. Yeah. Uh, so there are very uh, just a handful of items that really separate the two candidates. And, and well, and I think part of the, and the I think part of the reason we're saying that is because I'm not again I I don't think Fitzhugh has done a great job of of of. He, I think he needed. He was always going to be the underdog in this mm-hmm. in this race, and I think he needed to be hitting Dean harder on the charter school support. I mm-hmm. mean, you can see Dean is not embracing you know the the charter platform on a statewide run. I mean, he defends what he's done here in Nashville, and of course, he but would. in the Democratic primary, charter schools are, are will always be a controversial issue. Sure. Now, of course, Dean correctly noted that hey, uh, Craig, you actually did vote in favor of right. a charter school b- bill while. On the state, so maybe there's some of that playing in, but that was, you know, that that that's a real opportunity for, uh, you know, a, a distinction that does resonate with some people. That I think fits you could, you know, who I do believe is the underdog. He certainly is financially mm-hmm. and in the polls, mm-hmm. and that's something he can try to exploit. And he he did during that debate. On the Republican side, we saw a debate in Hendersonville. 
that really didn't allow that many differences between the the various gubernatorial candidates. All four were there, Beth Harwell, uh, Diane Black, Bill Lee, Randy Boyd. There weren't really many major differences between them. Uh, the four were supposed to, or at least three of the four, were supposed to gather this week uh, for another USA Today Network uh, WSMV debate that got canceled uh, largely due to logistical issues. Uh, I, I, I'm not really sure uh, with what went on back and forth. Black was not supposed to appear at that one anyways. Uh, that means there will be no more uh, USA Today Network debates before the general election. It also means that the the uh, Hendersonville GOP debate was the only one to happen before early voting starts. Uh, these debates have allowed a little bit of, of, of difference between the two candidates, but really there hasn't been too much of a mixing it up. So instead, we're kind of seeing now a, a, a bevy and a flood of ads hitting the airwaves uh, for both the governor's race and also the U.S. Senate race. Joey, you, you recently wrote about the uh, latest ad from Phil Bredesen. What's that all about? Well, look, uh, yeah, Bredesen from the outset has made clear he's not running against Donald Trump. Uh, and, you know, that wouldn't be smart to do in a state where Donald Trump uh, is popular uh, or, or at least remains above 50 percent. And, and, and Dean, I should say Bredesen, uh, a Democrat, is running an uphill uh, campaign. But he has found an opportunity with the tariff issue, which is is not, not polling well and has, has, you know, gotten a lot of critics here uh, based on Tennessee being a big agriculture state, uh, uh, auto manufacturing for exports, as well as, of course, or, or Jack Daniels whiskey. And so I think he found a good opportunity here to, uh, you know, to stake out an issue and try to make it. Uh, uh, I, I, Blackburn has been less forceful in her criticism of, of Trump's policy, uh, tariff policy. Because mm-hmm. I think he, he saw this as an opportunity to, to you know, for, for a good... Uh, issue for him to exploit. And and, and, uh, and I think nationally, that's going to be exactly, the theme yeah. throughout this election there that Democrats may not want to attack and say, hey, we want to impeach the president, you know, but they, they will say things are financially hurting our country if the president continues to go down this path and they can point to a very real policy like the tariff plan. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one that I think you're going to see that part of the Democratic playbook and a lot of uh, states like Tennessee that they're trying to to flip here, and so the, you know, interestingly, as we've talked about earlier today, uh, Blackburn remains not on television yet, and I think we're all kind of bracing for when uh, you know she goes on TV. They're they're waiting uh, longer for I guess a variety of reasons, uh, but Bredesen has pretty consistently been on TV here uh, since the winter. Blackburn's campaign points out, though, that Bredesen really hasn't gone up in polling, which I have no idea whether that's true or not. I haven't seen any new polls on the race in a couple of uh, weeks, at least. Uh, so it's it's really unclear whether the uh, I, I mean, Bredesen's name recognition, just like Blackburn, is through the roof. But who knows if if, you know, he's above the 50 percent mark at this point. Well, Blackburn was helped by the uh, the National Republican Senator. Well, committee that yeah. turned into an ad of, you know, the. Sure whole, uh, you know, he would be a, what's the word I'm missing a, here? A, a tool. A tool, for the that's Democrats, right, for yeah. uh, Schumer and Pelosi. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, she she has been assisted, at, you know, in that kind of uh, third-party ads there, or outside expenditure, I guess I should say, but yeah, not a direct ad from the uh, 
uh, Blackburn campaign. So other than uh, the ads with the U.S. Senate race, there were ads that started airing uh, from Randy Boyd, uh, where he's essentially going fishing and he's got a professional fisherman uh, endorsing him. Uh, Bill Lee is talking about religion and kind of being an outsider. Diane Black is talking about her uh, role with God, her background, her history, uh, where she crosses, crosses a set of railroad tracks, which is, uh, I think, illegal. Yeah. Um, then you've got uh, Fitzu, who's recently launched his ad. Carl Dean's got a new ad uh, called Forgotten Tennessee. Overall, from what I could tell on the governor's race alone uh, recently, um, more than $23 million is set to be spent on ads in the governor's race. That includes PACs, third-party organizations, as well as the candidates. Uh, So we're going to continue to monitor these ads. um, But for now, we're going to, uh, you know, just do the daily work. And what's up, Joey? Well, I mean, you know, we're really... Uh, hitting the home stretch here. I mean, this we is, are. you know, two weeks until early voting starts, July 13th, or roughly that. I mean, yes, three no, weeks. No, you're maybe. right. Yeah. So, I mean, we're t- the ads are really going to kick in here for this final month. Uh, the election is, is is like 40 days away. Your mailbox so, is going to get full. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of when you, 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 you know, make or break it here. And I think most people, would you agree, are looking at uh, Boyd and Black as the two front runners. I mean, I think by and large that is, yeah. They, I mean, if folks just totally dismiss the other two, or where do you? I, I don't know about dismiss, but you know, I think again, everybody was kind of anticipating Boyd and Black attacking each other, and there might be an avenue for for Lee or Harwell. They haven't really done that, so I mean, unless that happens in the next month, uh, I, I wouldn't be shocked to see Boyd and, and Black as the top two candidates. Yeah, I mean, I just haven't you know seen too much momentum from the the Harwell campaign. Lee uh, seems to have attracted some from the sure. from the right sure in the but but you know uh, not sure if he, he's gotten polling wise to what we've seen from black yeah I mean he got recently endorsed by May Beavers that does not have a whole lot of clout that does not carry much she was a former candidate running for governor but you know I mean that that helps him on the far right of things which some voters may have voted for black before that endorsement I don't know how much endorsements are going to be playing a role in this election though so Two thousand eighteen provides Tennesseans an opportunity to elect a woman to serve as the state's first female governor and U.S. senator in state history. Congressman Diane Black, House Speaker Beth Harwell, both of whom are running for governor, as well as Congressman Marsha Blackburn, are trying to make history this year. Historically, Tennessee has had females hold statewide positions. There's been Jane Eskin, a Democrat who was the first female to win statewide election when she was elected to the Public Service Commission in the 1980s. There's also been Jean Bodfish, who served as state controller from 1953 to 1955. Mary Carr, who was Secretary of State in the 1940s. We've also seen uh, current state Senator um, Sarah Kyle, who was previously on the Public Service Commission, but none have historically, uh, at least none of the candidates who have tried that have been women running for statewide offices uh, in terms of governor or U.S. Senate have been successful. Around the country, we've seen a whole lot of new candidates run for office this year, uh, and that's including running for U.S. Senate and for the governor's race. As of June 18th, 51 women That's 29 Democrats and 22 Republicans have filed to run for the U.S. Senate. That's at least according to Rutgers University's Center for American Women in Politics. 
On the, the governor's race side, uh, 61 women, 40 Democrats, 21 Republicans uh, have filed to run for governor. And that's a previous record or up from a previous record, which was set in 1994 uh, when 34 women candidates were running for governor. With all that in mind, uh, we decided to have a conversation with Amanda Hunter from the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, which is a Massachusetts-based nonpartisan organization that does research on women in politics. Uh, Amanda, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for, for coming on with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So the, the first thing we want to talk about, obviously, in, in this election here, uh, it's kind of different for us in Tennessee. We've got several women that are viable candidates running for statewide offices. We've got two running for, for gubernatorial races, and then we've also got Marsha Blackburn, who's who's trying to win a uh, nomination for the Republican uh, Party for the U.S. Senate. Um, Amanda, tell me about, you know, how, is this a record number of women running this year in 2018 for political offices? Absolutely. We are seeing across the country a record number of women stepping up to run for office at all levels. They're stepping up with a sense of urgency to represent their communities, and a lot of them are ignoring messages to wait their turn. The women are eager to solve problems in their community and feel like there simply isn't time to wait. Why is this happening this year? I mean, is it something that has to do with with President Trump's uh, election? Is it is it post Me Too movement? Uh, unpack that a little for us. Sure. It really seems like a confluence of events. My boss, the founder, Barbara Lee, of this organization has been doing this work for 20 years, and she says she hasn't seen this energy before since the civil rights movement or protesting around the Vietnam War. And she feels like this is really a much larger movement for women's political parity than any one year. A couple of weeks ago, I was listening to NPR and Cokie Roberts was on and she talked about how there have been many year of the women in the past that uh, I think there was one in the 80s. There was talk of uh, another in the 90s. Is this mm-hmm. uh, I mean, do you guys view this as kind of the year of the woman in in 2018 at least? I'm glad you asked that. Barbara has, she actually wrote an op-ed saying that she doesn't want this to be just another year of the woman, but to be sort of a springboard for women to start the turn, to turn the tide for women's political parity. And a lot of that work is being done by changing stereotypes. There are so many different women running for office from all different backgrounds, literally changing the face of leadership in some cases. Do you have a, a party breakdown in terms of, uh, you know, how many people are, are running uh, Democrats versus Republican as far as women? Sure. I don't have a specific breakdown, but we do know that in general, there are more Democrats running, more Democratic men and women. And that's typical when you have people challenging incumbents. But we are also seeing a lot of Republican women. And our research shows that now is an excellent time for women candidates, that voters are fed up with the status quo and see a vote for a woman as a vote to shake up the system. And women on both sides of the aisle benefit right now. In, in favorability with voters. This may be a bit of an odd question or a, a touchy question to ask, but why is it important? Why should uh, a voter care about whether a, a person is a male versus a female running for office? 
Sure, that's a great question. So voters believe and know that women are in touch with their lives. Oftentimes, women are the ones bearing the brunt of emotional labor in the family. They're the ones that are ultimately dealing with child care and other issues. And voters believe that women are in touch with their lives for that reason. Um, voters also know that women work across the aisle to get things done. And we've seen that in the Senate quite recently with all of the women's senators getting together for lunch and other networking events, trying to really build relationships rather than just having that strict partisan divide. And I think you also see, I mean, uh, since the Me Too movement kind of started, we saw on, on the national level and on state level, uh, female, um, you know, representatives, lawmakers who are coming out in mass saying, hey, I've been harassed, too, you know, that that they're they're bringing awareness to this issue in a way that if it was just still a chamber full of men, I don't know if there would be that that discussion of it. Absolutely. And we recently published research on sexual harassment in Me Too, which found that voters prefer candidates that take a strong stance against sexual harassment and that advocate for change. Um, and there's been a lot of talk of a backlash coming, but our research found that voters are skeptical of candidates who question the Me Too movement or belittle the Me Too movement and really respond positively to messages about fighting sexual harassment. What historically have been some of the, the challenges, the hurdles, the obstacles that women running for office face? That's such a great question. So men are able to simply list their accomplishments and qualification, just like points on a resume. While women really have to prove them, women candidates have to point to specific results like creating jobs, passing reforms, or balancing a budget, rather than just pointing to different jobs that they held. I know in the past, uh, you and I have also talked about the idea of uh, some some voters not wanting to be willing to vote for a woman because they, they feel, oh, what's going to happen with the family in a way that that wouldn't happen with a, a male candidate? Tell me a little more about that. Absolutely. And with more women with children running for office at this moment than ever before, it's even more relevant now. Our research shows that traditionally voters worry about the effect of a campaign on a woman candidate's children, especially if they're young children. So with all of the millennial women we see young, running, their children may be a little, a little bit younger. A prime concern for voters is whether a woman candidate will be able to serve her constituents and care for her family at the same time. The interesting part is voters acknowledge and it sometimes question the double standard mothers face on the campaign trail. However, they still actively participate in it. There's been a number of candidates that have done ads featuring children more prominently. A couple of gubernatorial candidates have done ads while actually breastfeeding. So by having this kind of imagery in these conversations, it may actually break down some of these stereotypes. This research on families we performed just in 2017, but it seems like there have been a lot of changes between now and then, and perhaps public perception will start to shift after this election cycle. The three candidates running here in Tennessee for statewide office, that's uh, U.S. Rep. Diane Black, uh, House mm -hmm. Speaker Beth Harwell. They're both running for governor. We also have Marsha Blackburn. Um, she's running for the U.S. Senate. The three of them do not talk about um, themselves being women and running for office. Um, how, how often do you see that? Is that something they all happen to be Republicans? I don't know if that plays a factor in it. But do you, is that a common thing to be a female but not talk about your gender as a, a leg up or an effort to, you know, just even discuss it? 
it doesn't seem like candidates are specifically calling out their gender as much in this election cycle. What they're doing is they're really running as they are. A lot of them come from unique backgrounds. And I know in Tennessee, a number of the women running for Congress have a variety of backgrounds, like being doctors, or I know there's a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, teacher, former broadcaster. So they're taking these unique backgrounds and then also talking about their families and other responsibilities and how they connect to issues. Our research found that voters like when women are running because they saw the impact of an issue. And if you look around the country at most campaigns, Women have become involved in politics because of an issue that has touched their family or touched their community. And specifically on Republican women, we found in our research last fall that Republican women make up ground on traditionally challenging areas for women candidates like national security. Um, GOP women remain weaker on health care, but they do better than GOP men on health care, according to this research. So Republican women have some unique advantages right now running for office. Uh, how, how big of a voting block are, are women out there? I mean, women certainly are more involved at this moment than seemingly in a very long time, um, especially on the Democratic side. But we see Republicans mobilizing as well. Women started out by marching and then organizing on social media, maybe contacting members of Congress and then really leading movements and getting involved in stepping up to run for office. Um, one interesting point that relates to Tennessee is that our research has found there's a difference between women running for executive office like governor mm -hmm. or uh, a legislative office like Senate, because women running for executive office are judged more critically than a woman running to be part of a deliberative body. If a woman is putting herself up there to be effectively CEO of her state, she has to work twice as hard to prove to voters that she's qualified to be the decision maker and not a decision maker. It's certainly a historic election and, and we're looking at having the, you know, the, the 50th governor come next as well as potentially uh, the first female governor or uh, U.S. Senator from Tennessee. Uh, Amanda, I, I want to thank you for, for coming on and discussing this with us. We'll continue to monitor, uh, you know, how, how these three candidates are faring in their respective races. But, uh, you know, as you continue to research this issue, I'm sure we'll, we'll be reaching out to you again. Absolutely. I hope so. Thank you. Hey listeners, I'm Tennessee politics reporter Jordan Bowie, and this is Fact and Fact Check, a segment of the show where we offer both facts about Tennessee politics and check out questionable statements and figures tossed around in the political arena. For last week, we checked out how long political parties have retained a governor in office. This week, we look at the last, quote, political outsider in the governor's mansion. While both Randy Boyd and Bill Lee have touted their business acumen over political experience, and Lee has said he's the only political outsider in the race, Tennessee hasn't chosen a first-time politician for governor since electing Winfield Dunn in 1970. The extent of Dunn's political experience before taking office was being chairman of the Shelby County Republican Party. That's our fact for the episode. Now on to our fact check. President Trump has recently called on states to send National Guard troops to protect the borders. Some have questioned whether a governor can deny this request. But in fact, a president can summon National Guard troops without a governor's consent, depending on which part of federal law the president invokes. In the case of Title 32, the president can request troops, but they remain under state control. Under Title 10, National Guard troops can be, quote, federalized by a president, but they must also be federally funded. But for border protection, the president's hands are somewhat tied. 
1978 Posse Comitatus Act prevents federal military forces from dealing with domestic issues, such as border protection. That's our fact and fact check for this week. Check back on our next episode for another segment. That's it for this episode of Grand Divisions. I'm Joel Ebert, your co-host with Dave Boucher, who should be back next week, hopefully. A quick reminder of important dates. Uh, July 3rd is the voter registration deadline. So before then, you're going to need to go onto the Secretary of State's website and make sure that you're registered to vote or update your voter registration if you've moved. Uh, July 13th is when early voting begins. That allows you to weigh in on on races from the governor's race to the, the U.S. Senate to even State House, where there are, are hundreds of people running for office this year. You can find Grand Divisions wherever you get your podcasts, including on iTunes. Uh, be sure to spread the word, tell your friends and politicos. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>